Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. The Athletic. The Phil Hay Show. Welcome to the Phil Hay Show, brought to you by The Athletic and The Square Ball. Dan here from The Square Ball with Michael from The Square Ball and The Athletic's Phil Hay, where you can read Phil's stuff, subscribe right now for a pound a month for six months, theathletic.com forward slash leads pod. I've got a feeling I know what you're going to be writing about this week, Phil. Yeah, um, I thought I thought you might. There, there is, however, a piece on Rafinha, if you want to Who? read about <laughs> him probably leaving. Um, there's a piece about how Twitter coped with Thursday night, which was... Not well. Enjoying it at the moment? It's grim, isn't it? Last weekend, after the Brighton game, as I was packing up, somebody walked past the press box and quite reasonably and fairly said, is there any chance you could make this podcast more upbeat than last week's, which I think was... Who was that, Jesse Marsh, Rodrizani? Yes, uh, somebody, with a, somebody with a bag over their head trying to sneak <laughs> out unidentified. Uh, last week's was, as they say, a doomcast, really, wasn't it? But I don't know if we can dig any more optimism out. Yeah, well, pound a month for six months, theathletic.com forward slash leads pod for that. And let's do it then. Let's talk about the events of last night. So we're recording on Friday morning now, rather than our usual Thursday slots. We wanted to wait and see what happened in the Everton and Burnley games. Everton, of course, won uh, against Palace 3-2, having been 2-0 down. Villa won all against Burnley, having been one down themselves. Did you experience the games yourself? Michael, you didn't watch it, did you? No, nope, ignored it. Why? Didn't want it. <laughs> I did some jobs. I just just left. Um, checked the scores occasionally, but muted my um, muted the WhatsApp group because I didn't want to see notifications from that pinging yep. through, mm-hmm. and just I just cracked on with some jobs <laughs> and uh, experienced it, the misery of it all at once, rather than, rather than minute by minute. I am um, I basically followed it on Twitter, although I did have the game on Sky at the same time, but. Because I'm always at the stadiums, the, the thing that I've never properly appreciated is how bad the lag is on the feeds that you get. So it kind of occurred to me that in the, the 10 years that I've been tweeting from games, you're seeing on Twitter what's happening about two minutes before you're seeing what's happening on the screen. In fact, you kept WhatsApping me last night, like the, the Villa goal. There we go. And I'm sitting and I'm only about to take a goal kick. You know, it's, it's incredibly difficult to follow and actually agonising as well. I mean, I had no idea how much it, it dangles you. But I'd kind of noticed on Wednesday that, that from first thing in the morning, this is like 36 hours before the Burnley game, the straw clutching had started already and people talking about what you're doing tomorrow night and, and everybody panicking. So we decided to do a piece on, as I said earlier, on, on how Twitter coped with it. And it was kind of mildly amusing stroke, heartbreaking. There was someone who still had the Christmas tree up for superstitious reasons. There was somebody who was promising to put on a Villa shirt with a gimp mask. People have probably seen the, the photo. But it's a it's a pretty desolate place when it's all going wrong. And you were saying, you know, Everton came back from 2-0 down. It's more than that, really. Everton were five points adrift on that weekend where Leeds lost to Manchester City, albeit with games in hand, and, and then beat Chelsea the following day. And they've bounced from that point to being safe with a game to go. You know, they're, they're up now and, and they're not part of this, this scramble on the last day. It's one from two and it's, it's Leeds or Burnley, which... I think as of last weekend, most of us felt would possibly be the case, but you, you never quite knew if Everton might get sucked back into it. 
And granted as well, you know, Newcastle spent a huge amount of money in January. But you go back to that game at Ellen Road that Leeds lost to Newcastle and you have a look at the table, where Newcastle were, the number of points they had compared to the number of points they, they have now. And I know part of the reason, a big reason why that's happened and, and, and it is investment and they have a, suddenly a huge amount of money up there. But there are, as we've seen with Everton over the past two, three weeks and, and also with Burnley since they, they sacked Dyche, there are clubs who've made a move and there are clubs who've managed to get it together and there are clubs who've delivered when it mattered. And sadly, Leeds haven't. And that is why they're in this position where they've they've got to get something at Brentford and then they've got to cross their fingers that it works out for them at Tough Moor as well. It's interesting, isn't it, looking at the example of Newcastle? And while we have to obviously accept that the, the circumstances are wildly different around ownership, that they're a club that's gone from paralysis through stasis, if you like, under Mike Ashley, to the change of ownership where they've, they've changed manager, they've invested in their squad in January and the momentum has carried them well clear of it. I mean, they're on for potentially a top half finish at this rate versus Leeds who chose to go from having great momentum to stasis this season and not investing when they needed to. Are you suggesting that the players Newcastle were able to sign in January were a, a material improvement on the um, the current performances of emerging players? You might say that. Yeah. Um, Newcastle were always a great example of inertia. And no matter how bad they were under Steve Bruce, didn't seem to matter. Mike Ashley just went with it. Didn't really sign anybody. When they did sign people, it was quite a lot of money on players like Joe Willock, who on his own wasn't going to make a huge difference to the, the Newcastle team. And they have changed completely. And they have changed no, no small part because of the, the money that they've got. But I think the, the biggest regret for Leeds in this the position they're in now must be that when January came, it was a time of inertia. They didn't sign anybody. It seems apparent that the relationship between Bielsa and the board had started to break down at that point. And you can tell that from the fact that he was sacked at, at the end of end of February. But you, what you have is a month where Leeds have come out of it saying, we think we've got enough. We think we'll be okay. You know, we're, we're confident we'll stay up. Three, four weeks down the line, they're sacking Bielsa because they don't think they're going to stay up. And ultimately, they, they haven't nipped things in the bud this season. They haven't reacted quickly enough or strongly enough to situations where they've looked problematic or have, have threatened danger. And they are now in deep, deep trouble, very, very much at risk of, of going down on Sunday. And it's a tangled web, really, isn't it, of reasons and, and factors. And you have to pick it apart strand by strand. But essentially, so much that could have gone wrong has gone wrong. I mean, they've been very keen to push the narrative that Van der Beek and Winks were there for the taking if we wanted them, but Bielsa didn't want them. So it feels like there, there was some almost preemptive blame shifting there, talking about those two. Is, is that fair? Yeah, no, there were definitely players who were suggested, who Leeds thought they could have brought in, who were suggested that Bielsa didn't want. I think you also have to say equally, he did approve the signing of Brendan Aronson, who was a target they went for but couldn't get. So I kind of keep saying this, it can't all be Bielsa's fault, in the same way as I don't think it can be one single person's fault this season. Even with your eyes on the pitch, you can see that there are players who have not played anywhere near as well this season as they did last season. It has all kind of ground to a halt. There are ways, definitely looking back, in, in which it could have been different. And I'll never deny that last summer I thought they would have enough. I did think they would have enough to stay up. I didn't think we were heading for a stellar season. And I certainly didn't think they were going to go beyond ninth or, or get anywhere close to Europe. But I thought they would be better than three teams in the league. So to that extent, I kind of understand why the club did. I understand why Bielsa did as well. But that's, that's a very, very low bar to set, Phil. It, no, it, it absolutely is. 
and survival was always the club's aim this season and, and they would they would never deny that. But I think you get into dangerous territory when you start to think that anything better than 18th will do. You know, that one of the beauties of last season was that Leeds were never in it. They were never ever in any danger because the results kept coming. They always had a little buffer between them and the bottom three. So even when they had little poor patches of results and they were never sustained, you know, they, they, they always managed to get themselves out of periods where they, they weren't picking up as many points as they wanted to. They had protection from that. This season, it's never, ever been there. They haven't actually spent a huge amount of time in the bottom three, quite a small amount, considering that, that they are now strong, strong favourites to, to go down. You know, it's been something like b- between 15 and 30 days in total. I haven't done the exact calculation, but as of the as of two, two, three weeks ago, it was all of 15 days that they've been in the bottom three, but they've always been close. They've always been in that ballpark. And and when you are, that's when you, you can get sucked in. And that's why I think, you know, to say it again, and, and I, I made this point last week, after Tottenham away in November, the, the piece we did was saying, this team looks like it badly needs additions in January. We were saying it on the show, weren't we? we? We couldn't foresee circumstances where they didn't do something. I think that's the thing. At this point last year, it is it is fair to say everyone was happy. I don't think there, were any, there wasn't anyone calling for Victor Alter's head or for a change in ownership or anything like that. Things were good. And I, I thought the same as Phil, really. I thought we probably wouldn't finish ninth. I think I predicted we finished like 13th or something at the start of the season. I thought we'd have a very mediocre kind of mid-table season. By the time January came around, it's clear that wasn't the season we were having. We were we were struggling. Yep. And there is a possibility of doing something in January, as we've seen with you know with Newcastle, with Brentford, who were down there with us, looking to get pulled in maybe at that stage. You know, they managed to, they managed to get Ericsson, who was transform them and giving them that extra extra push towards the end of the season. So there were options there in January and saying, well, we offered Van der Beek and Winks. There must have been other players as well. You know, there are other there are other footballers out there, not just people available on loan from other Premier League teams. There've got to be more creative options there. And then part of what we the the kind of thing we've been sold about the current structure of the club is that we've got all these different targets identified for different positions and there are you know there are three or four players that we can that will go down for each position in the squad, and there's a contingency there for if we can't get the first one, then maybe there's a second one. Van der Beek and Winks feel a bit like throwing some names out to go. Well, you've heard of them, and we're, we can get them if you want. Bielsa had already said no to Harry Winks anyway. The previous summer, he'd, he'd been offered and, and he didn't want him, so that one was never ever going to happen. I think the the bigger lesson here though is that the last thing you want to be doing in a season is relying on January. It has worked, obviously, for, for Newcastle, and it certainly can work. But I think clubs who find themselves being very active in January tend to have got the summer window wrong. You know, that's when, more and more, if you look at the top end of the table, or, or the clubs who are having good seasons, they do very little when January comes around because they're already prepared and they're already in a good state. Leeds, on the other hand, this time around, just did not have the depth, did not have the strength, they didn't have the form. That's the thing. I've become more and more concerned looking at the team because... When it lines up and you go through from front to back, the, the entire eleven, and you ask yourself, who's going to win this game? I find it difficult to, to come up with an answer. It felt like on Sunday, it was probably going to be Rafinha. And then in the end, it really was Gilhart. You know that, yes, it was strikes finish, but that bit of skill was was absolute magic to set up that cross to, to the back post. But that's it really. And you don't feel that, particularly with Bamford injured, you don't feel beyond that, that there are many people who are going to deliver when you most need them to to deliver and it's you know it's two points from the last five games it just isn't enough do you agree with michael though that in his assessment there that you've got to play the ball as it lies and that 
basically you can tell we didn't get the summer window right because of the first half of the season. I mean, we've not signed a central midfielder for four four years. Absolutely. Which is Absolutely. Ridic- it's ridiculous. And, 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 you know, it was fine for the first couple of years. But as we've said loads of times with Bielsa's methods and the size of the squad, it works until it doesn't work. But then when it doesn't work, it's hugely costly. And that's what's happened this season. And then they saw that it had fall, kind of fallen apart a little bit and still didn't do anything about it in January. I mean, weirdly, the, the answer to not signing a midfielder since we signed Adam Forshaw, was to say, well, Adam Forshaw's coming back, which is which is not good enough because he was he was always there. He's just he was just injured, and ultimately we've lost him for the final bit of the running. So it's ridiculous, isn't it? That it, that, that is now a tweet that's going to come back and haunt Radrazani potentially. Isn't that though the 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 bottom line with this season that when problems arose and when suddenly this great project and it was a great project and it, it did work unbelievably well under Bielsa, but when it stopped working. And when it ran into problems, nobody seemed to want to do anything about it. Nobody seemed to, or, or if they did want to do something about it, nothing was really done. The The tactics stayed the same. The, the manner of training stayed the same. The squad size pretty much stayed the same. The, the attitude towards January, okay, they, they did go for Aronson, but ultimately they didn't sign anybody and they tend not to be active in, in January. And it does feel as if, even though we, I think a lot of us have to go back to last summer and say, didn't really see this coming. Some people did. I mean, I, can't, I have to say that last summer there were people who were saying on Twitter and elsewhere, you know, I think this could be a really difficult season and I do worry for us. And, and ultimately they, they were right. But if we accept that, um, that a lot of us thought they would be okay, there have been things this season that have been staring them in the face. And I think that the squad size and the, the, lack of, the lack of depth, the lack of quality, the way in which the squad was struggling to hold up to the pressure of the season was abundantly clear. It really, really was. And it hasn't got any better. I mean, I, I remember somebody tweeting me in March, I think, saying, well, it'll be fine because Bamford and Phillips will be back soon. And I was thinking, yeah, but it's March. You know, we've been saying this since August. When, when we've got a fully fit squad, we'll be fine. Is there ever going to be a fully fit squad? And the answer's no. And I can't, believe, I can't believe that they knew it was going to be March at least until those players came back. The spine of the team. And they still didn't act. They knew, they knew it was months off. But why, why is that? I mean, we, we, I guess we're trying to carry out the post-mortem here before it's necessary because we might yet still stay up on Sunday. Well, we're going to repeat a lot of this next week, I think, yeah. um, either, either way, because we'll need to, you know... <laughs> Tune in, do, folks. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> you know, um, and because we're going to have to debrief on it. I mean, we've, we've been through this, haven't we? Because the, the Aronson was a yes, they went for Aronson, they couldn't get him, Salzburg weren't, weren't selling him, it was essentially going after the player who wasn't going to come in. Bielsa wouldn't have some of the other players who were recommended to him. There didn't seem to be any middle ground where they could find players who would suit or fit or so whatever. I mean, so whatever. Wait, describing that though, something's not right when you're ruling out massive swathes of the transfer market. Do you remember January in the promotion season when Nketiah left and Bielsa did not want Nketiah to go, Leeds didn't want Nketiah to go, but he wasn't playing enough in his mind. Is that the um, one where we signed um, John Kevin Augustan? That's, that's we never the signed man. him. Yes. Um, never heard of him. £18 million pounds well spent. Two of the players who were suggested to Bielsa in that window and who they could have gone for were Billy Sharp and Glenn Murray, who are both, you would say, players who, maybe not now, but back then, likely to get you out of the championship, likely to score you six, seven, eight goals. You know, if you want to go down the conventional route of how do you get out of the championship or how do you guarantee promotion, you go for a Billy Sharp, you go for a, a Glenn Murray. Seasoned pros, get. yeah. Exactly that. It's one way to do it. It wasn't what Leeds did. It wasn't what Bielsa did and more power to him, actually, for, for doing it his own way. Other managers would have gone, absolutely, if I can have Glenn Murray or I can have 
Billy Sharp at that point, then yeah, 100%. Bielsa said no to both. He said, no, they just don't fit my style. I don't want either of them. That's the end of it. So that was the end of it. And in the end, they went looking elsewhere. They had to get a centre-forward because Nketi had left. He'd gone back to Arsenal. So they did Augustine, um, <laughs> for better or worse, worse, worse. And that is quite often how it worked. I, I think we kind of all know what was in Bielsa's head. I think we all know his approach to squad building and team building and transfers and everything else. So it's not really a surprise, is it, that in January there was a bit of a difference of opinion. They, they would have differences of opinion. No Lang, another one, you know, that Leeds thought was a, a very, very good investment, but wasn't right So for Bielsa in, in his view. So they, they didn't go for it. But it is, to use that word again, it's inertia, isn't it? You find yourself in the end sitting on your hands, crossing your fingers slightly and saying, I think we'll be okay, only to then be sacking him three weeks later and essentially admitting, no, we're not okay. We're in trouble. And if if we're going to be brutally honest as well, his predecessor, his replacement, hasn't managed to do it so far. The plan has not taken hold since Jesse Marsh came in. You haven't seen a rapid transition or even a relatively full transition from one style to the next. It's, It's caught somewhere somewhere in the middle and I think that's been reflected in the performances. In the middle, very much the key phrase there. Yeah. All in the middle. Well, yes. Going back to um, the justification, which I think we touched on last week, so forgive us if we are repeating ourselves when, that's uh, what you were quoting there, Michael, about eight-figure outlays on players that will block pathways for the under-23s and so on and so forth. It's not really been the 23s that have been the problem this season, is it? It's been the senior pros, I would argue. Well, yeah, I mean, that it's the senior pros that you rely on and more so when the season runs into trouble. They're the ones that you have to have to rest on. They're your match winners, aren't they? That's that's uh, what you were saying before about your ex- match winners. Exactly, you want to exactly pull them that. from that pool. And actually, going, we'll talk about Brighton in a bit, In a bit, actually, but uh, the match winner, and it was Strauch who headed it in from the under-23s pool, but it was made by Joffe, wasn't it? Yeah, it was made by a 20-year-old from, from the academy. There are very good 23s at Leeds, and when I watch them play, I'm, I'm constantly impressed by them. But they've been relegated as well. You know, they've been collateral damage in this because it has been a case of loading up the first team squad with players who, to be honest, in different circumstances, I don't think would have been particularly needed. You know, not because they're not talented, but because they're not ready. You know, they're not ready to be in that position. And again, it looks now like too much faith was placed in that crop of 23s at a time when Leeds were, you know, the form was diminishing or the form wasn't great. And when it really did feel as if incomings from the transfer market were needed. And I mean, I I, kind of go back to this point over and over again. How many of the 23s now look more prepared for a full first-team season than they did nine months ago? I don't think very many. Gelhart, certainly, you know, he is is coming through and I would like to see Creswell um, get pushed. But Creswell has played very little football and hasn't been particularly involved in the first-team when it comes to games. You know, he's been in the squads and, and everything else. And Greenwood has had a little run recently. Definitely. But if you started putting together your squad for next season, whether it's the Premier League or the Championship, I still think you would think of all of these players, Gelhart accepted, as fringe players. You know, people who would be on the fringes around about what needs to be a much stronger core, a, a core with more peak years players in it, and a core that's just much more suited to, to stand up to the rigours of a, a really unforgiving league in the Premier League and a really unforgiving league in the Championship as well. And when your goal is to stay up, you can't rely on a team of under-23s, can you? It's just it's just not enough. Well, there's always the danger, isn't there, of getting sucked down the Alan Hansen, you know, you don't want anything with kids line. But 
I think it, it it's a very, very bold and risky move to assume that untried and untested under-23s are going to do it for you when you, you need them to. I think if, if you're mid-table, then you, you can afford to, to, to compensate slightly and you can afford to say, look, we, we want to blood these players and if it doesn't quite work or if it doesn't go well and we lose games, then it doesn't really matter. You know, it's in the grand scheme of things, it's it's fine. But you just can't take gambles like that when when you, you, your status is on the line as it is now. And they've fundamentally missed the big players who they needed. Bamford more than anybody else, without a doubt. I don't know if we're going to see Bamford on the bench this weekend. We're due to see Marsh later this afternoon, so we'll, we'll find out then. Phillips hasn't shone particularly since he's come back, but again, you know, missed a, a long period out. I think Cooper is more important to this team than a lot of people want to let on. I think that's that's fact. And it just hasn't hasn't been there. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard it right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask me. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is supported by Season 3 of FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League 2 after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the city's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher division. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenges and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. Catch all new episodes Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. Let's go back to the Brighton game. Then we haven't spoken about that yet. The most recent match of Leeds is, never mind the Thursday games. And a familiar story where we're conceding a goal again looking defensively shaky and then pulling one out of the hat into injury time again. Strange thing about it is that we've had that already, haven't we? It felt like Norwich all over again, slightly different circumstances, different result, but it it was like the Gellhart moment repeated, which is why, I was saying afterwards, it's like the coronary capital of English football, isn't it? Ellen Road at the minute. Everybody, Everybody's just so on edge and just... Quite, the same people tend to come past the press box and have a chat with you afterwards and everybody looks completely wiped. You know, everybody looks completely drained by this. And I think the difference between the Gilhart goal against Norwich and the strike goal against Brighton was that the Gilhart goal and, and that whole that whole moment was pretty funny. You know, it was it was that sort of comedy comedy thing that happens in, in football and you really enjoy, whereas the strike goal, it felt just desperate, you know, and, and seeing people afterwards, you could tell that Yes, there'd been that proper surge in the way that there always is in that moment. But I think every, everybody just needed to lie down afterwards. It was like the place was place was spinning. I almost felt on Sunday, and it didn't stay like this for long. It sort of muddled into I wasn't quite sure what. But I almost felt on Sunday like the, the initial formation was as close to Bielsa's as, as we've seen under Marsh. It, it did feel as if it was straying back towards the 4-1-4. He said it was 4-2-3-1 afterwards, but it felt as if Phillips had more license to operate alone in front of the back four. And you had Harrison hugging one wing, Rafinha hugging another wing, no longer playing at right back or, or right wing back. And given the formations we've gone through so far, we've had 4-2-3-1, we've had 4-2-2-2, we've had three at the back, we've had what looked like five at the back against Everton. And then that on Sunday, it's 
very hard to sit there and feel as if Marsh has, has fallen upon the plan that he wants and, and, and has managed to find a system that suits and, and can stick week after week. I mean, he, he was always going to be more adaptable in terms of his setup than Bielsa. He, he said right at the outset that he would mix things up if, if he felt that, that he needed to. But I think mixing it up so much at this stage when you're desperate for points does rather smack of, of, of something that is just not working or not working as well as it needs to. Has he been good enough what he's delivered so far, Phil? Not so far, no. I, I, I think you'd have to be really careful with him that he doesn't become the dominant subject in this because there are people who would carry the can before he does. But somebody asked me for a, a university project that they're doing, was it the right decision to sack Bielsa? And I think that needs a far more nu- nuanced answer than yes or no. There were quite clearly problems towards the end with Bielsa, the problems tactically, the, the number of goals they were conceding. And it might well be goal difference, which is the difference ultimately end of the season. And, and you know, Leeds is, is, is absolutely dreadful at minus, minus 38. But even if you thought that a change of head coach made sense, that's not a kind of endorsement of Jesse Marsh as the, the choice of, of replacement. And in order for the decision to be vindicated, they need to stay up. You know, that is how you can say it was the right decision. If they go down, that argument just doesn't stand up. You can argue, and it's also hypothetical, you could say, well, as a club, we thought we were going to go down anyway. You know, we thought Bielsa would take us down. That's why we, we made the change. But in order for you to say, it's what, it was the right decision. He's made the impact we were looking for in this period. You can't get relegated. Mm. It just doesn't, you know, there's just no, no debate to be had there. Because you made a statement last week on the show, which was then, I think it was turned into a graphic, wasn't it, by The Athletic? But it was taken out of context. And it was saying that if we get to the end of the season and we go down, you might as well say that the change was not pointless, but, you know, it's not justified. Well, it hasn't worked, yeah. has it, if you go down? It, I it, think that's that's the context that we kind of want to add yeah. to, to what was said last yeah, week, I, because I know you've got a lot of pellers for that. Well, I, th- I think I think that that is, that is the point. You know, it's not to say that Bielsa would... I mean, th- there is no real sense in getting stuck in hypothetical discussions about who would have done this, who would have done that. But if you've gone for Marsh as your head coach and you've decided that that's the decision that, that is going to keep you up and it doesn't, then it's not a feather in your cap, is it? It simply hasn't worked. I think the other thing with Marsh is that we've not seen enough good football from it either. The, the system, to a lot of eyes, has just been a complete failure in several games. Like we've there've been certain promising aspects to it, like the Leicester game when he first turned up. I think people were kind of willing to buy into the fact it looked a bit more structured and maybe it was going to just tighten us up defensively. And we we all of a sudden did look better from set pieces, and that's that side of things was improved. But in terms of with the ball, there's just nothing going on. I mean, it it felt like we had. It was more chaotic than than ever, probably against Brighton. But there were players at least seemed to be stood in the right positions, even if maybe the slickness of the old Bielsa team wasn't there. But for so many games of under Marsh, it's just got so bogged down in the middle, and it felt it feels like we've not played to our strengths at all with the the formations that he's chosen some of the time. Mm-hmm. And I mean, if if you're going to pin something on Bielsa, I guess I'd be interested to know what you think on this, Phil, about the use of Gelhart because he's someone that every time we've seen this year has looked really good and so many times we've not started him even in the absence of a striker. I wonder if that was something that ultimately might have cost Bielsa. And it's inescapable as well that there were a number of times when he'd bring Tyler Roberts off the bench and people groaned about it and yeah, sang, and sang Gelhart's name. Yeah, no, no, they, they did. You couldn't say that Gelhart's been used a huge amount by anybody this season. It wasn't by Bielsa, hasn't been used massively by Marsh. He was injured for a period under Marsh in the same way that he was injured for a period under under Bielsa as well. What I was saying about the 
constant change of formations and and the sense of of a manager that is not really fallen into place for in in this period. I think is reflected as well by some of the selections of the team. You've you've had Rodrigo in, Rodrigo substituted, Clay starting, substituted at half time, dropped back into the team. It's not helped by the lack of choice that's there in the squad. And I think when all's said and done, you you, you have to be honest and, and say that the root cause of this is the fact that the squad has been inadequate. It has, you know, that's why they are in in 18th. It's not the only reason. And and as I always say, that the kind of multiple factors for this. It isn't as if Marsh has said to himself, this is the 11 that I'm going to go with. This is the 11 that's going to do it for me. This is how we're going to play. This is how it's going to work. And it's been consistently stuck with right through these 12 games. It has chopped and changed. It hasn't really fallen into place at all. And they just have not been able, even after those five games where they, they went unbeaten. And I still think it will I still think it will surprise Marsh that given how comfortable they looked after the win at Watford, that it's come to this. Because even then he felt like you felt like there was still what to do, but it was going to take a lot from the clubs below them to close up. But they've done it. You know, they've done it. They've they've served up the results. Leeds haven't, and, and that's why it is as it is. And the failure to go for go for broke, if you like, for points against um, Southampton and, and Palace, that's starting to look more and more costly. I mean, again, we'll know whether it does ultimately cost us on Sunday. I guess, yeah, the, the Palace game more for me than the Southampton game. They play better against Southampton than they did against Palace, but you're right. I mean... I think the slight difference with that was that because they'd had a, a couple of really good wins, I would say really good wins, you know, really priceless wins against Norwich and, and Wolves, that it probably felt a little bit like a better point on the day than, than it does looking back. Now, I think there was a much bigger question mark over whether that point at Palace was a good result just because of how they played and, and because of how little attacking ambition or, or quality that there was. It's the sort of result that can keep you up but it's equally the sort of result that, that can send you down and there just haven't been enough wins on the board this season they, they haven't it's at this stage where it's kind of do or die at the weekend and you're on 35 points and if you're on 35 points then you are very much in harm's way Do you agree with what Michael said about the, the evident lack of plan? Because I, I had Shackleton over on my side of the stadium and I watched him when he came on because I thought oh, I haven't seen Jamie Shack for a while be, I'll just keep an eye on him see what he gets up to and the number of times when he'd be looking for passes that just weren't there it feels confused to me. I mean, I I never understand the the kind of appeal of coaching. Really, it seems to me like it's you kind of you kind of there for a hail of bullets, aren't you? People who get into it obviously love it, but I always find it astonishing that when footballers retire, particularly if they retire with a fair amount of money and, and comfortable and everything else, that they don't just want to head off for a, an easy life. This is a really pressurised situation, and I. My perception of Marsh is that he's gone from a, a position in February where he was ultra excited about it and delighted to be here and, and everything <laughs> else to the position now where he cannot be enjoying this and he doesn't look like he's enjoying this. And what is there to enjoy about it? You know, it, it's fine saying to people, you know, I love coaching this, that and the other. It's it's, well, it's what I what I do. It's, it's what I live for and everything else. Nobody lives for coaching a team who get relegated and, and have this going on around about it. I mean, he, he said on Sunday that he didn't hear the quote, the chance towards Bielsa. Mm. Uh, pretty audible. I mean, that's a, it's a good way to shut that question down, isn't it? Because there's no follow-up to that. <laughs> and, and I absolutely guarantee you that the, the board in the director's box heard what was being chanted at them. No doubt about that at all. That's been coming. And it seemed to me on Sunday that we really were an easy finish from Danny Welbeck away from a, a, you know an almighty meltdown. It's kind of very, very on the edge and, and it was starting to go 
already. I think, I mean, that seemed to me, somebody was arguing the toss with me about this and saying it was coincidental, but I don't think it was. It seemed to me that it was on the back of the substitutions, wasn't it? Yeah, very the, much the substitutions so, yeah. came. The substitutions were made. I think we in the press box were saying, I'm very surprised that he's taken Click off rather than Rodrigo, who looked completely spent and had had just one of those games where... Looked completely spent since kickoff. I was looking at him in the first half thinking, the first pass to Harrison that that he doesn't make and Brighton score, obviously not flattering. But then there's a second one where he just stabs it out into into touch when it's an easy, easy ball forward to, to Harrison. And I was there sitting thinking, does he want to be taking those passes rather than making them? Is he just not good enough? Does anybody know where's he supposed to play? That, well, that, that specific pass, I addressed it over on our show actually this last week. So again, forgive me if I'm repeating myself, but that was the sign of a man who had heard the crowd reaction from, I think he'd done it a couple of times and he'd been caught yeah. in possession. So there was a bit of a groan. Then there was that one where he should have laid it off to Harrison and it got louder. And then that was like the third one in the sequence. And you could tell he just wanted rid of that ball, but he'd got in his own head. It got in his own head yeah. about playing yeah, no, that no, ball. No, no, so that's, that's how it is. It, ended up just stabbing it out into it's touch. A, it's a very, very psychological game and more so than ever when you're under pressure. And that is the sort of thing that's that's been building. You know, people have tried and the crowd, I think, have tried incredibly hard to be patient with all this. I, I think they, they have. But there comes a moment where people do start to think to themselves, this isn't right, is it? This isn't working. It's not happening. And I think that's what came of the substitutions when they were made and... Th- the irony being, obviously, that it is Strike who heads in at the back post in the end, although I don't think that was the substitution that, that was, you know, the, the main cause of frustration. I think it probably was Cleek coming off rather than rather than Rodrigo. Worth saying that people used to hate Bielsa's substitutions as well, generally speaking, because yeah, it was always they, Tyler Roberts. They could, they, they could be very, very mixed, them as well, and, and not always massively effective. But this is it, isn't it? It's just been everything this season. Everything. For everything you can level at Marsh, there are people who would level criticism at Bielsa and so on it's it's like just this roundabout that keeps on going round and round and round and and looks like it's going to end in the way that we didn't want it to. right so so psychologist town now then so that substitution substitutions are made the crowd the first reaction is to sing Marcelo Bielsa so what do you think is meant by that and what why Marcelo Bielsa why not you don't know what you're doing why was it Marcelo Bielsa what is the crowd trying to angle at in that in that situation well I'm only guessing here because I'm not them um, so they'd have to tell you. But I think it was a vote of diminishing confidence in Marsh. That's how it, it felt to me. It was it was criticism of him on the basis of this is the guy we had previously, this is the head coach we had previously, this is what we think of him. I also think it was a bit of a pointed um, throw towards the board of we didn't want to lose Bielsa. I don't think that applies to everybody, but you know the, the, the definite core, big core, who did not want him to go at that point. And probably in the, the bigger picture, People making the point that that's what we had. We had this great situation, this, you know, it's kind of perfect landscape that seems so well set up last summer and it's gone. And that, I think, is why it went very quickly from chance about Bielsa into chance about the board, because that, I would suggest, is where more of the attention lies than, than on Marsh himself. I'm not saying that Marsh has performed particularly well in these 12 games at all, but I think making it all about him or predominantly about him would be totally, totally wrong. Mm. Not much rhymes with Marsh is why he's saying Bielsa. It's quite difficult, quite difficult to formulate a Marsh. If, if I was a, a straightforward Marsh out. If I was a head coach, I'd definitely um, adopt a surname that you cannot rhyme certain words with, 100%. <laughs> That's why Jason Orange did it. <laughs> the, the, yes, um, one, one about Gary Monk in particular springs to mind. <laughs> 
But we do need to talk about Joffy's moment as well. In among all the, uh, you know, this uh, absolutely this blood, brilliant. this bloodletting and upset and all that stuff. Brilliant. You know, there have been so few moments to enjoy this season, and so many of the enjoyable moments have actually been really high stress moments as well, haven't they? Like Joffy's goal against uh, against Norwich. But I just, I just kind of grin when I think about it. I've watched it so many times. So much football and so much about football these days is structured and planned and you know drilled to the nth degree, and it's all. Some of it can be quite robotic and a lot of coaches and your, your best coaches love the, the robotic aspect to it. You know, the the likelihood that they can trust players to do exactly what they're supposed to do in the right moments. And I always love it when you get little flashes of just total improvisation and, and total genius. Like that's what's so good about Rafinha is that every now and again, he will completely mug somebody like Gary Cahill or, or other players. It's not mean Cahill alone, but you just get that little moment where it's off the cuff and it's it's instinctive. I mean, someone said to me that the, the players afterwards had said to Gilhart, that was sensational, that was absolutely brilliant. And apparently his reaction was just like, all right, well, I just, I just did it. You know, I, just, I didn't think anything of it really. But that, but but was, that little chip. So pure, it was just so pure. That was, it, that was kid in the schoolyard, the, wasn't it? it? It really was. And the other thing is that had he just banged that in, had it was actually a really good pass from Urenti, um on the edge of the box as well. It's sort of pass you just don't think a centre-back's going to, going to pull off but he but he does and if when the ball drops to Gilhart he swings it straight in Brighton are in good shape and Brighton probably clear that or the keeper comes out and, and takes it but it's, I, would, I would imagine that the percentages of that ending in a goal would have been very low but because of the little skip and the hold up and the, the, the chip over the outstretched leg suddenly they're in total disarray and you've got striker marked at, at the back post and he's so talented he really is so talented he's been I mean player of the season right it's, it's Rafinha isn't it I mean it's not a wildly competitive field, but it is him. You know, goals, assists, he's carried leads as best he can. I don't think anybody has played better than him in the periods when he's he's played really well. But it's coming to something when you're almost saying that... Well, minute for that, minute, minute for minute impact. It, yeah, yeah. Uh, not far behind, you would say Gilhart, because Gilhart has done an awful lot. You know, the, the winning that penalty against Wolves, the... Scoring at Chelsea. The, the goal at Norwich. The goal at Chelsea is one of my favourite of the entire season. Watch it back if you get the chance anytime. And look at the precision of how it's made. And also Well, I'll look at it on the season DVD when that comes out. Yeah, that was what the It'll sell in its tens. <laughs> yeah, off all five minutes of it. Um just just be joffy moments and Rafinha goals. But that, you know, Chelsea okay, Chelsea are not best team in the Premier League, but they've got some very, very wise, proven, high-quality centre-backs. And look at the way he gets away from all of them and, and that little run to the front post. He He's had a really good season in his own way and it's a shame that he's not played more. The beauty of the, the what he did on the weekend, I think, is when some of the nicest moments in football are when you let the opposition come so close to getting it and that's all what he did. He sat him down and then it, <laughs> the leg was there dangling and he nearly got to it, yeah. but it was just over him. It's like when you see a chip that just beats the goalkeeper and on, just only just sort of trickles over the line. Those nice moments where you're like, yeah, you, you nearly it's, had it's, it. You nearly had it's it. It's the reverse of that video. I think it's Japanese players. You know where they've got like 100 kids chasing them yeah. around the pitch? Well, in this case, it was the kids getting chased by 100 Brighton players. And, and like you say, every time you think you're just going to get a toe on the ball, it's it's away from you. Well, there, there are almost a, it's almost a mirror image of um, the Lukaku goal that he scored at the South Sand end where people were flying across trying to get that desperate last block in to stop him scoring. And he took one, two, three, four bites of the cherry, whatever it was, and put it in. You thought... Oh, sod off but then, <laughs> yeah. but then Joffy goes down there and does that and just I just I absolutely marvel at the 
and it's not even presence of mind, is it? It's pure instinct at, at that level, at that speed, to realise that I'll go to that space and he's there and therefore I have to check back onto that side to wrong foot him. And now he's down, I'll just skip over him. To, to, to have all that happen just by instinct, I think is amazing. And in the last minute of a game as well, when you've played it all and you're, you're presumably pretty tired, at that mentally and physically, to be able to still have it in your legs and your brain to have that. Because like you say, the, the air in the ground was of desperation. It was pump it into the box, I think is what, 90% of players I, I think that's, that I think that's he, what 90% of people expected just, Llorente just, to do. He just looks like a machine though, yeah. doesn't he? I mean, the, the, in actual fact, he's like a robot, but he's like iRobot where they develop their own <laughs> kind of in, intelligence and, and ability to, to do what they want to do and, and you know not be programmed into everything. He's somebody that they have got to, got to keep, got to keep. You know, I, th- I think if they go down and even if they stay up, you, you've got to ask the question about Rafinha and, and Phillips now I, I don't see any way in which Rafinha stays I, if they go down I just can't see what, what's in it for Phillips being here either but somebody like Gelhart, as young as he is and as talented as he is he's got to be right in the thick of it This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra the official beer sponsor of the NBA want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day, or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. One to go then. The uh, the Jess conference is uh, a little bit later on today. We're recording Friday morning, Phil, so we don't quite That's know. That's very good, that. Um, I've been using it for weeks, the Jess oh, conference. Well done, yeah. Sunday, four o'clock, Brentford. Uh, what are you expecting to find? Does Bamford make it? We touched on him earlier on in the show. I don't know. I don't know. It didn't sound when we spoke to Marsh last Friday like Bamford was going to be in the squad. And, and in actual fact, he sort of said to us, you know, I don't want to talk about him particularly. I don't want to, to focus too heavily on him. I think you, you've got to be fair to Bamford and not push him in a way that risks anything. And I, I know things are, are desperate, but individually, you've got to be fair to him for his physical conditioning. But if he is in any way available and if he can play a part and if he can give you half an hour, he's got to be in the squad. Got to be. You know, it might be one goal that does it at the weekend. Because they aren't down. This is the thing. You just get the sense that nobody really fancies them at Brentford, particularly. I don't know if either of you two fancy them at Brentford. You're going to say yes because you always say yes. Michael's <laughs> shaking his head because Michael always shakes his head. We should um, really go back through the points predictions this year. I think Danadav is winning the league. Given <laughs> the, uh, every single week predicting but, a win. But you know what it is? I always, I always live in hope that we get a day like, you know what happened at West Ham? Like when, yes. w- when the madness descends and Leeds become Leeds again. I keep waiting for that to happen this season and we have occasional flashes of it, but we've basically gone through the entire season without it this year, barring the odd game here or there. Like we had the, we obviously won at Watford, we had the madness at Wolves. You sort of feel like those are games that point you to survival, aren't they? You know, getting yeah. something against Brighton, getting three points against Norwich and against Wolves in circumstances where it doesn't feel like it's going to happen. Those are the games that you expect to look back on and say, that was critical. You know, that was what got them got them over the line. Part of me still can't believe that they are down in 18th, given where they were three weeks ago, given how it looked after the game at Watford and even before the game against Manchester City. It just all went against them on that weekend and, and it hasn't really turned around. 
we spoke to Tony DiRigo over on our show, uh, one of our subscriber shows, to mark the 30th anniversary of the 91-92 team lifting the title. And we asked him about, I mean, if you go back to the results, you can find that that sequence of results on Wikipedia. Late in that season, when they were half a dozen games from the end, went to Man City, lost 4-0. I think Man United were like a point behind that two games in hand or whatever. It looked like we'd completely blown it. So I said to Dorigo, did, did you know in that dressing room, did you feel like it was over? And he said, no. Like Howard Wilkinson always broke it down into six game blocks. He said, well, try and win five of those. That one there, they'll probably drop some points. And, and you might just be all right. Trust your swing was kind of the um, the thing. And and said, well, how how do you kind of apply that in, a, in like in a psychological sense? And he said, what you do is you take it right back to basics. And you say, it's still a game of football, 11 against 11, on the same patch of grass that you played on when you were five, when you were 10. You just got to go out and win a football match. So that's how I'm kind of trying to view, I'm, I'm channeling Dorigo and I'm trying to view this game on Sunday as Leeds United need to go out there and win a football match on a patch of grass, forget all the other stuff. Um, and see what happens burning Newcastle. I, I feel like part of the problem with trusting your swing is Wilco is saying that's them after a few very successful years. We've had a season where the swing has not been there. We are definitely more, we are more me playing golf than Tiger Woods but this it, season. It, 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 makes, it, it, you get the occasional one that goes well, but a lot of the time you're just taking lumps it, out of the ground. It makes a result like City back in that season an anomaly rather than what you used to. I remember speaking to Gordon Strachan about that as well, that particular game. And there probably is nobody in the history of football that was more able to just go, ah, never mind, and strike him. But that's what he said. He said, once we got back in on Monday, the attitude was basically, well, whatever. It's gone now. It's gone. gone. Yeah. yeah. Which they which they did. Um, and they had, the, they had, I guess, the nerve and, and the, the basis of character to be able to do that and, and not to let it rattle them particularly. It, we're talking about a very, very different team this time. And... and talking about a team under far more pressure and with, with no real form to cling to this season. That's the thing. It's, it must be a long time now since this squad felt like they were cruising. You know, the, if you think of the run towards the back end of last season, the final weeks when there was nothing at stake, it was all so easy, wasn't it? It was all like Spurs turned up at Elland Road, got beaten. Yes, they lost down at Brighton. They got Southampton, they win there. They got Burnley, win 4-0. It was just, you know, results off the bat. And those, are the, those must be the best moments to, to be a player. Brentford, I always think, have things about them that don't suit Leeds particularly. And this isn't a game that looks like a great fixture to me. I think, I'm not saying I would prefer to have uh, Newcastle at home, particularly although I don't know what Burnley will get from Newcastle, but I do think Burnley have got the more favourable fixture. And added to that, there is, weirdly, quite a lot of niggle and needle between Leeds and Brentford and, and a lot of it pretty recent. You know, it's not a historic thing, but there is the the mind the gap Thomas Frank stuff Tony was referencing that on Twitter a couple of weeks back you know there was, there was the season where they were going head to head for, for second place and, and, on, and the title as it turned out with Leeds but you know right in the mix together for promotion I don't think of all the clubs in the Premier League I don't think Brentford are high up the list of clubs who would look to do Leeds a favour Yeah but nobody does do they I mean let's face it I don't, I don't think you can no, play, but, uh, you, you can't place too much stock in that I think you can place a fair amount when it comes to how Brentford didn't play on Sunday would it surprise you if Newcastle say it's you know say Burnley need a point and it ends up nil nil and Newcastle don't really force the pace and they don't really do much and they're quite happy to just let it peter out because of where they are and, and the fact that their season's done. I, I don't think that would surprise you much. I think you might find that Brentford are on it a little bit more on Sunday because there is a little bit of history there. Mm, yeah, I don't disagree, but I also think we don't need to overly worry about that too much. 
No, no the, the task I, at hand I, is big is bigger I, than worrying about whether Brentford turn up or not. I think it? essentially it's a difficult game, but the long and short of it is Leeds have got to go there and play well. Got yeah. to go there and play well. They've got to have a plan that works, a plan that holds up from start to finish, and a plan that that picks away at Brentford's weaknesses. I mean, Brentford have lost seventeen times this season, so they're very very beatable. And you know there should be enough in and enough evidence in those games when you watch them back to find you know, points at which you can hurt them and, and ways in which you can hurt them. So it's a it's a big, you know, I was going to say it's a big test for Marsh. I mean, that's completely underplaying <laughs> it. It's massive, massive examination this of how can you do it when it is absolutely all there for the taking or all there for the losing. How do you see his approach in this game? Because you can set out to, do you think you really try and get to half time with it level without throwing too much at it? Because obviously you don't want to, you don't want to go for it and find yourself two down and then get in at half time and find... Burnley are two down as well, you know, and a point would actually be enough. It's a, it's a constant moving parts. That'll be one of the things that we ask him about later on. You know, what what do you do? How many risks do you take? How much attention do you pay to what's going on at Turf Moor? I think the one thing you can't afford to do in this game is to play in a way where defensively you put yourself at risk of conceding. I think if if you let Brentford have the bulk of the game and if you let Brentford come at you then the chances are they're going to score. The chances are they'll, they'll get ahead. And, and I think I think the first goal will be absolutely everything on Sunday. I think if Leeds go behind, it'll be incredibly difficult to get themselves out of that because I do honestly wonder what the mood's going to be like in the away end, how, you know, how, how people are, are going to react to this, how they're going to cope with it. But equally, the thing that, that Leeds really need to do is get ahead and get ahead early, preferably, so that the board goes around tough, move, Burnley start to realise what's going on and, and the pressure cranks up there. I think we've got a couple of match winners in our squad and I, I hope that Sunday's a day for them. I hope this is a day for Rafinha in his almost certainly farewell appearance. I think Gelhart might just have a bit between his teeth. There is enough in our team, I think, to to worry Brentford. And I know I'm I'm just trying I'm trying to convince myself here because I do sort of expect us to go down. I don't necessarily expect us to win. But I also don't want to write off our chances either. We've got some good players. We don't. We undoubtedly have the players to beat Brentford on, we, we, we if, look, we, if we play well. It's just we, look, we have not played well all season. We looked better than them at Ellen Road, is what I will say. Albeit under a different manager with a different style of football. There were periods of that game where Leeds looked better than them. There were periods of that game where Leeds didn't. Although that was quite heavily affected by injuries, and and that was a, a critical day in, in the sense of losing Phillips and um, and Cooper. You know, in, in the circumstances that they did. But if on if on Sunday you get a massive performance from Phillips and you get a massive performance from Rafinha and you get more of that from Gilhart, it's entirely possible. It's entirely possible. And one of the things that I've been thinking about is that there are a lot of players in this squad who sweated absolutely everything for the sake of the Bielsa project to get Leeds out of the championship, to do it as they did, to create that unbelievable story. And there is nobody, none of them will want this to be bookended by relegation. So that when you tell the story of going up on the Bielsa, the denouement to it is, yeah, but we went back down again. It, it, think of everything that, that you've sacrificed and how hard you pushed yourselves. I suspect for people like Ailing and, you know, it's, it's his fault because of the red card, but watching, and, and you know, Dallas as well, it isn't his fault, it's the, the, the injury. Watching that, sitting watching this on Sunday will be absolute agony. I mean, <laughs> it, I, I, can't even, I can't even begin to, to imagine... But there will be players there who, who just will not want this to be the way that it finishes. And that's what makes you hope that something weird and wonderful is going to go off I on mean, Sunday. never write it off. I mean, I know no. it's, been, it's been such a slog as this season. It's been so depressing. Everybody's hated it. Yeah. Everybody's hated and that's, it. And that's partly <laughs> the reason why if we go down, I'm all right with it and I've come to terms with it 
because I want it over with. I mean, we're doing the charity walk next week. I'm looking forward to not having to worry about an upcoming Leeds game, to be perfectly honest, and just get outdoors, one foot in front of the other for a few days, you know, for a good cause. This has been awful this season. I feel like, I feel after last night's results, I kind of feel like we're down. I just feel (laughs) like, well, that's that. I feel like whatever we do, Burnley will match it on the last day. Mm. I just feel like we we could probably go there and win and Burnley will see that we're winning and they'll just be able to foot on the gas last 20 minutes. Ashley Barnes wins a penalty or something do, and that's, that's the end of it. Do you think it's better to be away in this fixture than at home? For the board. <laughs> I was, I was, yeah, I was going to say that as well. I don't know. Not really, no. Because I don't know, we seem to have played have we played marginally better away this season or have I made that up? I don't know, I don't know where the wins have come. Um, We've had four at home and four away, I, haven't I, we? Yeah. yeah. I'm just clutching at straws, Phil. Come on. I, I, I would <laughs> much rather there was an Ellen Road crowd with this, definitely. But there isn't so... Don't you think the Ellen Road crowd scares some of these players under these circumstances? Like uh, Rodrigo, for example, perfect example. But I, th- I think I could pick out several games this season where the crowd have made a definite, definite difference. And people always bang on about, oh, the crowd did this, the crowd did that, you know, there's great support and blah, 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 blah. But go back to the Wolves game and look at that wacko that went up with 70 minutes gone, 20 minutes to go, 1-0 down. It was just right place, right time. And it did make a difference. Look at the crowd towards the end of the Norwich game. Look at the crowd towards the end of the, the you know, the end of the Brighton game. I know there was the, the toxic period, but even in the first half when they went behind, there was a bit of grumbling, there was a bit of complaining. Yeah, there was a bit of getting at Rodrigo, but nothing that you wouldn't expect in these circumstances and actually nowhere near as severe as, as it might become. There have been plenty of moments where I, I think Ellen Road has made a difference. Um, and I, I suspect that without it, Leeds would be worse off than they are at the moment. So, in answer to that, and, and I did watch them go down in 2007 and they had the home game against Ipswich and they had the home crowd, but I don't think it was as tight back then as it is now. I think it was already, I, I know there's, there's frustration with the board at the moment, but I think it was worse with Bates. I think there was far more antipathy towards that regime than there is at the moment. So I would rather, for this fixture, I would much rather it was at Ellen Road, right. but it isn't. With the crowd stuff, do we sometimes retrospectively apply that though? Because there are equally, the crowd is good against... Man City and against Chelsea and there was nothing like nothing nothing changed in those games uh, but I think that comes down to quality and that comes down to Leeds not being good enough to win those games whereas in games against Watford and games against uh, sorry against Wolves and games against Brighton and, and games against Norwich they should be taking something from those you know and, and that's where it makes the difference they were always going to lose to Man City realistically I know they did beat them last season at the Etihad and that was Amazing result, but the goal's huge. I guess I mean, what about, what about the other the fifteen the other fifteen home games we've we failed to win? Then I guess is the one to ask. I guess the answer to that is that the crowd can't do it all for you, well, can they? The reason, you know, like at some well, point, the the guys on that big green rectangle well, the, have, have got to, got mean, to again, do it. The, the reason why I brought it up though goes back to Tony Dorigo, and one of the things he said was about the Ellen Road crowd. It's he said it seeps into you as a player. It seeps into you, and maybe that's what we saw. You know, like with the for example the Dan James red card when the the players are getting up, like all hyped up and. Uh, I don't know, maybe losing their discipline or this tendency, as Marsh describes it, of of the crowd are want, wanting us to go from 100 to 150 all the time because of what we saw under BL. So whereas actually there are occasions when it needs a cooler head. It does. Have, um, yeah. Although Ailing did exactly the same at Arsenal. So you're not going to talk me around here, I don't think. <laughs> so what I we're all doing is we're, we're finding evidence to suit our own individual <laughs> viewpoints and none, best, of, it, and none of it means to, anything. Best way to do it. Oh God. Just get out of there with some goals, with a win, wrap it all up. That's all you can hope for. It is. I mean, whether it comes to pass or not, I don't know. But uh, we'll be sitting here in a few days' time, 
probably reflect tonight one way or another. It, it seems as well that I have to retire my goal tweets, don't I? Um, mm, sadly. And uh, it was all going so well until you wrote that book, Phil. It was, yeah. Do you know what? It was still beautiful, though. It was. I always think that about um, the Bielsa period, that even for all this, it was magic, couldn't it? It was magic. It really was, but then again, that's what makes this so hard to take. I think so. I think so, so soon afterwards. I think if there was a... If we had a, a buffer between Bielsa and and another and relegation, it would feel it would feel easier to take, wouldn't it? But the fact it it does feel like well, that was for nothing. Was it um, was it Dave Guy who wrote on our blog this week? Uh, it feels like you know you get the Hollywood climax to a film with the big happy ending, and it feels like they've just left the cameras rolling now, and we've seen all the stuff like the packing up afterwards, all the, all the sad bits when it all starts to go wrong. You know, like Char- I think the, the likeness was Charlie in the Chocolate Factory developing. He's developing a sherbet addiction. It's all gone wrong for him, kind of thing. You know, like he's he's inherited the factory. Brilliant glass elevator, all that sort of stuff, and then it's all just gone belly up afterwards. Yeah, it does feel a bit like that. I don't think when when I look at it now, I don't think anybody really knew how to move on from Bielsa. I don't think anybody really knew how you were going to. I don't mean who you were going to recruit or who you're going to you know, players you might sign off. Not the the sign of kind of rudimentary stuff, you know, which head coach you, you might appoint. But I mean, emotionally and culturally, I don't think anybody had given enough thought. Maybe you never could, but enough thought to how do you leave that behind and how do you how do you move on? Given that nobody really wanted to leave it behind, everybody would have liked it to have gone on forever, but it was never going to go on forever. It's the world's and worst breakup, isn't it? It kind of is. And, and all the way through it with Bielsa, you always knew that one day this would no longer be how it was and, and either he'd be gone or it would, you know, it, it would start to decline or, or whatever else. I mean, we must have spoken about it loads on, on various podcast episodes about the fact that that was coming down the line somewhere and, and someday everybody would, would have to accept it. But there's a difference between saying that and knowing how to manage it and actually being able to manage it. And it, it seems to me that appointing him in the first place was such a, yeah, key decision, such a big decision. But actually, losing him has had every bit as, and you know, the, the the process of it declining has had every bit as much impact on the club in a different way, and has been every, you know, it's been really, really difficult to handle and and to get through. I think for all it would be obviously horrible to to go down again. I think you would still have to look at it in the round and say the club that is relegated to the championship this time around is still an entirely different club than the one. Bielsa walked into all those years ago. It was because there's so much more interest in it now, and people have people have definitely rediscovered a, like a love and an interest in Leeds United. Like, the fact that it's so hard to get tickets this season is is brilliant because for years you could walk up on the day of a match and sit in any stand you wanted. There could be ten of you in a row, and it wouldn't be a problem. Like the the level of interest is great, and I think whatever happens this weekend, if we do go down, there needs to be a I suppose a thought of this this isn't where it ends. You know, we we do need to come back and come back fast from this. Yeah, it, it doesn't have to be 16 years. That's the other side of it. Obviously, it's, it's it's going into another period of the unknown, isn't it, from when you go down. But it doesn't have to be like it was before. And that is, that is one way in which I think Leeds United is burdened by its history, isn't it? The way that we're so pessimistic about the idea of getting to a playoff final, for example, because we'd only go there and lose. It's 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 a real millstone around our neck is that we had, we had this long spell out. It was eight years first time round, then it was 16 years. And now people say, I'll be 32 years this time. That's the cycle. But it doesn't have to be, does it? But this isn't a problem exclusive to Leeds at all. But for all clubs or, or all clubs that, that try to be or, or are ambitious, none of what you imagine or none of what you want to happen in the future is tangible, is it? It might come and it might develop, but you, you, you're hoping for, for things that aren't there. Whereas with Bielsa, I think this is the thing you'll always have from this, it was tangible. You actually had it and it happened and it went on 
and people loved it. And you know as well as I do, I've been followed football for years and years. There's a lot of football and a lot of a lot about following football that doesn't give you a great deal of fulfilment at all. I mean, it's, there's a lot about it that can frustrate you and annoy you. But every now and again, you have these little pockets of of extreme joy, and there always has to be a plan, and there always has to be an endpoint, and you you always have to aim for things. So yes, you want to get into Europe, and you want to win trophies and, and everything else. But it, it's all meaningless until it happens. You know, when it happens, then you have it, and and that's the moment, and that's why. Rangers in Seville, Liverpool going for the quadruple, you start to feel like you can touch it. Whereas, you know, for a lot of football fans and, and with a lot of what goes on at football, it's all talk and it's all projections and it's all F spots and maybes. And, and that's the thing about the, the Bielsa era is that you did have it and it was there and it was real and you'll always have it. And that's one thing to say about Sunday's game is this is the official bookend of the Bielsa era, isn't it? Very much so. And to that end, it deserves survival. And I think a lot of the players deserve to stay up this season as well they haven't played well it hasn't been a good year but I don't like to do that thing where you go from acknowledging everything that was so good in the three years under under Bielsa to deciding you know that, that nobody deserves any credit anymore because of, of how it's gone there are players who gave everything in that period pushed themselves extremely hard and it shouldn't end in them going down hopefully not plan for the worst hope for the best that's the saying is it e- well it'll do yeah it'll do close enough yeah. well we'll be back next week at some point after Sunday to it'll be either be the, the, the party sigh of relief or the post-mortem one of the two um, I know which one I prefer let's see which one if we it's, get if it's, the, if it's the party and the sigh of relief shall I bring more special brew <laughs> the, I was going to say the special brew super strength is, still on, is it still on the shelves it, it is Phil I, I couldn't it never bring... goes out of date that you know <laughs> <laughs> I can't bring myself to drink it unfortunately well you see what Michael did was he used the what was the glass he used I used the champagne I used a, a tap right. champagne glass to so drink mine it, from yeah and I bet is... it tasted better because oh, of it, was... it. I could. It was almost like I could pretend I was in a because of the because of the high strength of it. It was almost like I was drinking a, kind of a, a high end Belgian beer or something. If I if I could twist my mind enough, I was thinking <laughs> I think this is classy now. Well, I'll tell you what. Then here's my my promise to you is that if we stay up on Sunday because uh, we'll be in here watching it, I'm actually going to miss I think the first half, which is not for it's not too bad really. I don't mind missing a bit of the stress. Um, I will at least crack open a can in celebration Good man. And, and take a sip and that's all, that's all I can promise you maybe at the end of all this it'll be tenant super strength that saves us at the Phil Hayes show on Twitter and you can subscribe to The Athletic theathletic.com forward slash leads pod pound a month for six months strap in gentlemen we'll speak next week The Phil Hayes show As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel.
Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. 